sermon text today is Genesis chapter 35. I'll read the text. There will be no New Testament reading today because of the length of this one. I would ask that you uh, be patient with me as I have a bit of an extended introduction to this sermon as I begin to develop the concepts here. Uh, Stay with me is what I'm saying. I also want to put myself out there and commit to something that's been on my mind for some time. Uh, Beginning in the first of the year, we're going to start over in our catechism again. Uh, I don't know if will this be the fourth time that we've gone through it as a family since starting Emmaus all those years ago. We go through the catechism once every two years uh, according to the, uh, the, the, the pattern that we've established. But uh, this year I'm going to start to record uh, little teachings on the catechism intended to be digested by the members of Emmaus um, on Lord's Day evening. Uh, that is my hope, that you will, I'll take what Phil does here and expand upon it further for the benefit of uh, all of the members of Emmaus. I, I pray that whether or not you have children in the home that you'd listen in and be instructed doctrinally in the Christian faith. Also application will be made from these things. Uh, but also I think it will be beneficial for families if the children are o- older and especially parents uh, to listen to that teaching so that they might then digest it and give it to their children. Uh, so that will begin, uh, Lord willing, at the beginning of the year It will be in podcast form and it will be called catechesis because that is what it is. It is instruction by word of mouth. I look forward to that. Please pray for me that I could discipline my time to get it done actually week after week. Genesis chapter 35 is our sermon text for today. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's most holy word. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I go. In fact, Jacob said, This is the God who answers me in the day of my distress. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the name of the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor And she had hard labor. And when her labor labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani. But his father called him 
Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went in and laid with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So far the reading of God's holy word. Our prayer is that the Lord would bless the preaching of it today. At first glance, Genesis chapter 35 might seem like a random collection of unrelated facts pertaining to the life of Jacob and his family. It does feel that way, doesn't it? As you read the text, we kind of skip from one thing to the next, and it's just this this collection of, of, of little stories, of little facts regarding Jacob and his family. But upon closer examination, we find that this chapter follows a pattern already established in the book of Genesis. It brings the section which began at 2519 concerning the descendants of Isaac to a conclusion, while at the same time preparing the reader for what will follow. So Genesis 35, when considered structurally, and when compared to the structure of Genesis that came before it, it functions like a hinge. It closes the previous section and begins to open the next section up to us. I do want to remind you that after the prologue of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, the book of Genesis is divided into ten sections. Each of these ten sections begins with a phrase, these are the generations of, or something close to that. For example, Genesis 2.4 says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. 4.1 says this is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis 6.9 says these are the generations of Noah, etc., etc. After each of these introductory headings, we find a record of the offspring of the figure that was named in that introduction. The offspring of the heavens and the earth, the offspring of Adam, of Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, and Isaac. Notice that in chapter 36, if you look ahead just a little bit in the Bible, you will see that we will come to consider the generations of Esau. There his genealogy is set before us in chapter 36. And then beginning in chapter 37, 2, we will consider the generations of Jacob, which will bring the book of Genesis uh, to a conclusion as we consider his descendants. And a particular emphasis is given to the life of Joseph. And so Genesis 35 is very important in that it brings the eighth section of the book of Genesis, that is the one that tells of the generations of Isaac, to a conclusion while also preparing us for what will follow, namely a prolonged consideration of the sons of Jacob with special attention given to Joseph 
through whom the nation of Israel would be preserved in the world. That really is, I think, my very favorite part of the book of Genesis, by the way. A story of the life of Joseph and how he goes down into Egypt and makes a way for the preservation of Israel there. The story of the generations of Isaac began in 2519. His two sons, Esau and Jacob, were the main characters in that story. I'm not going to repeat the whole story in detail, for we've been considering it for some time now. But in brief, Jacob and Esau were twins. It was revealed to their mother that while they were still in the womb that contrary to the way of the world, the older would serve the younger. Jacob the younger was to have the birthright and the blessing, and not Esau the older. Even more significant, Jacob would be the one to receive the promises of God that were given first to Abraham and to Isaac. They would be given to him and not to Esau. Jacob would be blessed of the Lord and he would be a blessing. He would become a great nation. He would possess the land of Canaan. And through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. These promises were given to Jacob time and time again. We have heard them restated over and over again. The Lord coming to Jacob and reassuring him these promises are going to be fulfilled in and through you and your offspring. And one thing was made very clear. These promises were given to him, not because he was deserving, but by the grace of God alone. For what did we learn of Jacob? He was a deceptive, self-serving, and manipulative individual at the start, but God pursued him, He called him, and He changed him in the course of time. These changes took place within Jacob through suffering, didn't they? As a consequence of his deceitful behavior towards his father and brother, he was driven away into exile. And while in exile, he was given a taste of his own medicine. He himself was deceived by his uncle named Laban. He served him like a slave for many years. But God was faithful to call Jacob back to the land that was promised to him. God preserved him. God graciously wrestled with him so as to humble him further, bringing him to a place of deeper dependence upon him. So in chapters, in chapters 33 through 35, we find an account of Jacob entering back into the land of Canaan. In 36, we will learn that Esau would leave Canaan for what would become Edom in the hill country of Seir. And so here is the narrative. Here is the story recounted for you. And I say all of this to you by way of introduction, not so that you might win at Bible trivia. I hope that you win at Bible trivia. That would be wonderful. How many sections is the book of Genesis broken into after the prologue of chapters 1 and 2? We say 10. You've won at Bible trivia. That is wonderful. But instead I say this to you in hopes that we not lose sight of the big picture of the story of Genesis which is in fact the beginning of the story of our redemption that is told in the Bible as a whole. It is so easy when studying the book of Genesis to have this myopic view on these individual stories. We get really caught up in them, don't we? We love to learn about Abraham and everything that he did, his strengths and his weaknesses, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. These are wonderful stories that we teach to our children, and we should. But there is a danger in focusing so intensely upon these stories. We lose picture we lose the big picture if we're not careful. And indeed, a story is being told here in the book of Genesis. A story is beginning to develop, and we have to keep it in mind always as we consider these individual pieces of narrative. Please bear with me for just a little while longer as I labor to set this little story and all the others into the context of the bigger story of Genesis and of Scripture. We must 
never forget how the book of Genesis began. The book of beginnings begins with the story of the creation of the heavenly realm and also the earthly realm. Do you remember that? It seems like a long time ago that we were considering those chapters. It's there we learned that God's purpose for creating the earth was to make it a place suitable for human habitation. He created the heavenly realm in the beginning, that is the place where the glory of God is manifest along with the angels. And He created the earthly realm. And why did He create the earthly realm as He did? He formed it out of uh, an unformed thing into a formed thing, a place that was orderly, so that it might be a place where man could dwell. It's a place suitable for human habitation. Not only that, but it was to be a place where man would commune with God. Adam and Eve were created by God and they were placed within Eden. And there they walked with God. There they were to worship and serve Him. There they were to work for six days and rest and worship on the seventh in hopes that they would enter into eternal rest. They were to expand that garden paradise. There they were to multiply living in personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience to their Maker. What then was the original creation? What was it? We have observed that it was a temple or a sanctuary where man communed with God. We might also say that the original creation was a kingdom. To have a kingdom, you must have land. You must have citizens and a king. And in Eden, all three were present. There was a land that was formed for human habitation. In particular, the Garden of Eden was made by God. There were citizens in that land, Adam and Eve, and there was a king. God Himself was the king of that place. Adam also had a kingly role to play, but only as a vice-regent living under the supreme authority of the king and kings, and king of kings and, and lord of lords. And so this is the picture that Genesis 2, 4 through 25 paints. It describes the original creation as a holy kingdom. It describes Eden as a sanctuary where our first parents enjoyed communion with God. There they walked with God and God communed with them. There was intimacy of relationship between God and man through that covenantal relationship that was established. But we must not forget Genesis chapter 3. For Genesis 3 explains to us why we do not live in a world that is all kingdom of God and all sanctuary of God. Far from it. We live in a world that is fallen and tainted by sin. I do not need to convince you that we do not live in the world that Genesis 2 describes, do you? You know it. You see it every day. You see it in yourself even. We live in a world that is filled with the hatred of God, sin, suffering, and this thing called death. Those opening chapters of Genesis, brothers and sisters, must not be forgotten. For they tell us of God's original design. They tell us of His original offer, that is, life eternal through obedience. And they also tell us of the rejection of that offer in Adam's rebellion. The kingdom of God was offered to Adam and to Eve and through their obedience to all their posterity, but it was rejected, friends. It was rejected by Him. Instead of honoring God as the King of kings and Lord of lords, Adam listened to another voice. He honored that voice instead. He even decided to set himself up as supreme king. 
You say, what does this have to do with Genesis 35? Sounds like a strange introduction, doesn't it, to this passage? What does this have to do with Genesis 35? And the answer is everything. It has everything to do with Genesis chapter 35. The stories of Genesis 1 through 3 are the backdrop to these stories that we have been considering and are considering and will continue to consider. You will not be able to make sense of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, nor of the significance of Jacob and his family entering the land that was promised to them to worship with God without the backdrop of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Here is really the question that I am asking. What was God up to when He called Abraham out of Ur and promised to bless him, to make his name great, and to bless the nations of the earth through him? What was God up to when He promised to make Abraham into a great multitude, into nations and kings? What was God up to when He promised to give Abraham land, What was God up to when He gave those same promises to Abraham's chosen offspring, Isaac and then Jacob? Was He only concerned to bless those men and their families? Was that His objective? Was that His concern? Was that what He was up to? To bless those men and their families only? Was He only concerned with their immediate offspring? Or with that nation that would eventually be born from them? Or was this the start of something much larger? Of course, my view is this, and it's what the Scriptures teach most clearly. God was up to something much bigger than this. The answer is that God was beginning in those days, in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the days where those promises were first made to them, He was beginning to provide a way of salvation for the world. He was beginning to recover what was lost in the sin of Adam. These stories regarding Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are among the first of God's initiatives to take back that which was stolen by the evil one. Here in Genesis we find the beginning of God's redemption. He called one man from amongst the nations, and He promised to make that one man into many He would also give that one man and his descendants a land. Kings would come from him. A nation would be born. And through that people, a nation and, and through that people and nation, a savior would come into the world. And he would provide salvation, not only for the physical descendants of Abraham, but for all the nations of the earth. What we are witnessing here in the book of Genesis is the beginning of the story of God's redemption. The beginning of that process, that historical process whereby God would take back that which, that which was lost in the sin of Adam. And we must never lose sight of this big picture story of redemption. The story of the inbreaking of God's kingdom into a fallen world and the renewal of God's temple which has been defiled by the sin of God's creatures. The first thing that I would like to recognize in this story, the story of Genesis 35, concerning Jacob's journey into Canaan, is that this journey into Canaan that we are witnessing here, Jacob coming back into the land of Canaan after being in bondage to Laban, this journey into Canaan was a preview 
of Israel's conquest of Canaan under Joshua and of our entry into the new heavens and earth in Jesus the Christ. You're beginning to get the sense that this sermon here is one of those big picture sermons. It's one of those sermons that is seeking to connect this little narrative to the bigger story of Holy Scripture. This story here of Jacob's journey into Canaan was a preview of Israel's later conquest of Canaan under Joshua and our entry into the new heavens and earth in Jesus the Christ. You might be thinking to yourself, where do you see that in this text, Pastor? Are you not guilty of reading something into this text that is not there? Well, the answer is that this is clearly seen only when we keep the big picture story of Scripture in view. You've probably heard it said that we must interpret individual passages of Scripture in their context. Have you ever heard that said by Bible teachers? That's true. We do need to consider the context, but what most mean by that is that we must consider the individual passage, taking into consideration the passage that immediately preceded it, or the passage that immediately follows it. Those chapters or paragraphs uh, have a bearing upon the text that we are considering, and that is all good. But what I am here saying is that we are to consider not only the immediate context, but the whole biblical context when considering any particular passage of Scripture. We are to consider Genesis to Revelation, and we're to interpret original, uh, individual passages of Scripture in light of the story that is being told there. And when we consider the whole story from Genesis to Revelation, it becomes clear that Jacob's journey into Canaan was a preview of Israel's conquest of Canaan under Joshua and our entry into the new heavens and the new earth in Jesus the Christ. That is how I am coming to that conclusion. Notice this. Jacob went into exile and found himself in bondage to Laban for many years. The Lord called him out of that foreign land to enter the land of promise. Laban pursued him, but God preserved him. The Lord appeared to Jacob and promised to always be with him. Jacob feared the surrounding nations, for they were greater than he. But God made them tremble so that Jacob might enter the land safely. Does that, does that storyline sound familiar to you? It should sound familiar to you, for we have just read of it, of course. But there is a, another familiar story found in Holy Scripture, one that is better known even than this one. And we see that this story that we are today considering is a little miniature version of a much bigger and much better known story, the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt under Moses and the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. In other words, Jacob, who was given the name Israel, by the way, experienced in miniature what his offspring, that is to say Israel as a nation, would experience on a larger scale many years later. His little journey here out of Canaan and then back again from bondage to freedom and his entry into the land of Canaan. It was a little miniature taste of what would be accomplished on a much greater scale. That story of Exodus that you are familiar with where Moses would deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt. They would wander in the wilderness for a time. They would be pursued. They would be threatened by the nations. God's presence was with them and He would bring them safely into the land of promise under the leadership of Joshua. And I want you to think of the impact this would have had upon the people of Israel as they left Egypt, sojourned in the wilderness, and prepared to enter Canaan to conquer it in the days of Joshua. Remember that Moses wrote the book of Genesis and gave it to them. And so as they read it, and as they're wandering in the wilderness places, what are they being reminded of? They see in their forefather, Jacob, a little miniature example of the very thing that they are experiencing. 
And they would have been encouraged by this story. They would have said, look it, we are experiencing the same thing now. We were in bondage to Egypt. We're in the wilderness now. These nations are threatening us all around us. But God is present with us just as He was present with our forefather Jacob. Just as He was faithful to keep His promises to him, He will be faithful to keep His promises to us, for these promises pertain to us as they did to Him. We are to be encouraged also by this story. Friends, Jacob was freed from Laban, and Israel was freed from Egypt. But you and I have been delivered from the domain of darkness, have we not? Both Jacob and Israel were defended by the Lord from the powerful nations that surrounded them. You and I are defended from the principalities of darkness even now. Jacob and Israel entered into Canaan. What a blessing that must have been for the both of them to finally go in and to one degree or another take possession of that land that had been promised to them. But you and I, if we are in Christ, will be brought safely into the new heavens and earth through faith in Jesus, who is the Christ. We are to trust in Him, therefore. We are to cling to Him. We are to be found in Him. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Again, you might be thinking to yourself that pastor has lost it, interpreting Scripture like this as if these stories, the story of Jacob entering into Canaan, and then later on a bigger scale, the story of Israel entering into Canaan, uh, as if they are prototypes of something larger to happen later. You might be thinking that I have lost it in interpreting Scripture like this, but I would respond by asking you, have you read the New Testament Scriptures? For this is how they interpret the Old Testament stories that we are now considering. Do you remember how Jesus spoke to the men at Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning who? Himself. Or have you forgotten the words of Paul who spoke to Christians saying, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What is Paul doing except using this language of redemption? The redemption that was true of Jacob and of Israel and of their deliverance. And he's applying it to the, to the church, to the Christian in a spiritual sense. Or of Peter, who spoke to the Christian, saying, But you, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Do you hear the language that Peter was using? He's using that Old Testament language. That Old Testament language that was once applied to Israel as a nation, he's applying it to the church, Jew and Gentile, united together in Christ. And he's saying, in essence, this, those stories of old concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and concerning also the nation of Israel later, were but prototypes of the much greater thing that would happen in the days of Christ Jesus. He would provide a deliverance from you, not from Laban, not from Egypt, but from the dominion of 
of darkness, from the domain of darkness itself, from the evil one himself. Uh, these stories are, are miniature little versions of greater things yet to come. And so as we read of Jacob escaping Laban and entering Canaan, and as we consider the nation of Israel being freed from Egypt and entering Canaan, we are to remember that these were but miniature versions of a much greater redemption and blessing that would be accomplished by Christ in the fullness of time, by His obedient life, sacrificial and victorious, uh, sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into His kingdom in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, I would like for you to recognize this as we look again at Genesis chapter 35, that you, like Jacob, were redeemed so that you might worship. Notice what Jacob did upon entering into the land of Canaan. As he enters into that land of promise, what did he do? God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. What was he to do? He was to make an altar there to the God who appeared to him when he fled from his brother Esau. And that is the very thing that he did. He was brought into that land. He was brought into that land to do what? To worship. To worship God. Uh, this also is why you have been redeemed. This also is why you have been delivered from the domain of darkness. So that you might give worship to the God who created you. So that you might give worship to the God who, who saved you. Who has redeemed you. Two, notice that you, like Jacob, must put away foreign gods. Notice what happened upon entering into the land. Jacob said to all his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Didn't that little phrase surprise you? Here we are considering Jacob and his family. And yet we learn that they had foreign gods with them. Where did they get them? Well, two places. First of all, some were stolen from Laban as the family of Jacob left that place. But also remember uh, what the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, did to the people of the land after Dinah was defiled. They plundered and conquered that people. They annihilated that people and they took some of their foreign gods with them evidently. And Jacob says, look it, we're, we're preparing to enter into the land that was promised to us. One thing we must do is put away all the foreign gods that we have. We must not have any, any bit of idolatry amongst us. They had foreign gods with them. And what I am saying is that you too might have foreign gods with you. I know that in our culture we are not into physical idolatry. Uh, we do not have the custom of making little images and worshipping them or bowing down to them. We have a more subtle form of idolatry, though, in our culture. We have this habit of making God into our own image in our minds and in our hearts. We have this habit of, of reducing Him to, to something that we're comfortable with. We have this habit of pretending that God is just a bigger and better version of us. That is idolatry, brothers and sisters. To have in your mind and heart unbiblical, untrue, minimized versions of what God is, is idolatry. And many are idolatrous in this way in the church today. We must put them aside if we are to enter into the land that God has promised to us. If we are redeemed by Him, we are to worship Him, and we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We must put away the idols, brothers and sisters. We must lab labor to know God as He has revealed Himself to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. Three, notice that you, like Jacob, must be made pure. 
Furthermore, Jacob said to his family, You are to purify yourselves and change your garments. Why did his family need to be made pure? Why did his family need to be made pure? Well, they were clearly sinful. And in particular, uh, some things had happened to them and they had done some things that made them ceremonially, ceremonially unpure as they prepared to enter into the land of Canaan. Dinah was just defiled and the sons of Jacob acted very deceptively and wickedly when they slaughtered the people that defiled her. They needed to be made pure. But it was a ceremonial purity that was required of them to enter into Canaan. They were to change their garments, notice. They were to probably wash with water. They were to be ceremonial, ceremonially pure before entering into Canaan. But what I must say to you, brothers and sisters, is that ceremonial purity will not do if you are to enter the new heavens and the new earth which Christ has prepared for us. We must be made pure to the very core of our being, brothers and sisters. To change your garments and to ceremonially wash will not do the trick. That is merely external. It worked for Jacob and his family as they prepared to enter into the physical land of Canaan. But if we are to enter into the new heavens and new earth, we are to be made pure to the core. How can that happen? It is not something that we can do to ourselves, but it is something that must be done to us. We must be washed by the blood of Christ. We must be clothed with His righteousness. We must have His righteousness imputed to us. And upon believing upon Him, we know that our sins are forgiven. They are washed away. If we are to enter into the new heavens and new earth, that is to say, into eternal life, this is the kind of purity that is required. Fourthly, you, like Jacob, must trust always in the Lord as you sojourn in this place. Listen to what Jacob said to his family in Genesis 35.3. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. Do you see the faith of Jacob here? He's saying, I'm, I'm ready to move forward. I'm terrified to move forward, because the nations around me are so much stronger than I am. And as we begin to go out on the move, we will find ourselves very vulnerable. But nevertheless, let us arise and go. Let us arise and go. And we too are to walk with that kind of faith as we sojourn in this world towards the promised land, the new heavens and new earth. We are to be found trusting always in the God who is with us wherever we go. And I pray that this would be our resolve each morning to say these words, let us arise and go up to Bethel. Let us go and worship our God there. And let us trust always in our God who answers us in our distress and is with us wherever we have gone. Five, you like Jacob must be faithful to worship, brothers and sisters. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. What is this about? It's hard to know, I will be honest with you. But I think this was an offering that was made. I think it was the giving of a tithe do you remember what Jacob said when God appeared to him at Bethel those many years ago as he was fleeing his brother Esau? He said, And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me I will give a full tenth to you. Genesis 28-22. And it was common later on for the people of God to worship in this way, to give of their possessions the gold that they had as an act of worship to the Lord, as a tithe as it were. Uh, the worship of God has always involved the giving of offerings and of tithes. Are you? 
Are you worshiping God in this way by giving of your first fruits, by giving to the Lord that which He has provided uh, for you a portion? In verse 5, we see that as they journeyed, a terror fell from God upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there, look at what Jacob did. He built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed Himself to him when he fled from his brother. He worshipped. This would have been dangerous for Jacob to do. He would have again made himself vulnerable to the nations as he labored to build this altar, but he made the worship of God, the public and corporate worship of God, a priority. He entered the land and he worshipped. He worshipped. And what are we to do now that we have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun? We are to worship. We are to worship privately, of course, and that is the thing that is heavily emphasized in our day, private worship. And there is such thing as private worship, worship in our day-to-day lives, worship in our homes and with our families. But we are to especially give attention to worship that is corporate and that is public. We're to gather here together, brothers and sisters, each Lord's Day to give God the worship that He so rightly deserves. And what will we do when we enter the new heavens and new earth, finally? of which Canaan is a prototype. What will we do when we enter the new heavens and new earth? Day and night and for all eternity, we are going to worship. We're going to give worship to the God who made us. We're going to give worship to the God who has redeemed us. And if when you reflect upon that fact, that in the new heavens and earth we will worship continually, you think that it will be boring? Have any of you ever had that thought? Really? Every day? All day and all night? We're just going to worship God continually, basking in His glory? Um, All day and all night, I'm speaking in earthly terms, will there be night in the new heavens and new earth? No, for the glory of God will fill that place. That sounds awfully boring. If that is your opinion, I fear that you have greatly underestimated God's unbounded glory and the pleasure that we will find in knowing Him. Brothers and sisters, I'm preaching in a a big picture sort of way this morning, and I hope you're able to connect the dots. But what I am saying to you is that when God made Adam and Eve, He made them for this purpose, that they might dwell forever in His sanctuary and give worship to His name, living in perpetual obedience to Him. This was His original design, that all be kingdom, that all be temple that all be filled with the glory of God. That was lost, brothers and sisters. And what do we see here in Jacob entering into the land of Canaan and later Israel entering into Canaan except the beginning of the story of God regaining all of that for us. His goal is not Jacob in Canaan. His goal was not the nation of Israel in Canaan. His goal is His people, Jew and Gentiles, all of His elect, gathered together in the new heavens and new earth. Do you remember the book of Revelation that we studied not long ago? What does the end of that book describe except all of creation as temple? All of creation filled with the glory of God. And if we were made in the beginning for that purpose, to worship God continually, how can you for even a moment think that will be unsatisfying to us to worship God day and night? No, you will be most satisfied then 
For that is the purpose for which you were created in the beginning, to know God and to be known by Him and to dwell in His presence and to give Him the praise that He so rightly deserves. Never will you be more full that in that day when you see God face to face and you worship Him night and day, night and day, earthly speaking. The second observation that I would like to make about Genesis 35 is that Jacob's journey into Canaan was clearly not an entry into the final state. That is a way of me saying this is obviously not the end of the story. In other words, though his entry into Canaan was a significant step forward in the accomplishment of God's plan of redemption, it was not the final step. And in yet other words, though in this story we are beginning to see the formation of a kingdom. Do you see it? Can you see that there is a kingdom that is beginning to be formed here in Genesis chapter 35, the kingdom of Israel? The, the arrival of God's consummated kingdom was clearly not yet. It's not even close to being here Notice a few things about this, and this point will be much shorter than the first one. Notice that there are nations in the world who would do Israel harm were it not for God causing a terror to fall upon them. Verse 5. Is everything God's kingdom here in Genesis 35? No. A kingdom is beginning to be formed, but the kingdoms of the earth hate God, and they hate the people of God. When God's kingdom is consummated, that is, when the new heavens and earth are ushered in, no such kingdoms will exist in the world. All will be God's kingdom. All will be God's temple. See Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Notice also that the pain of death still plagued Israel. Verse 8, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. Genesis 35, 8. How Deborah, follow with me here, who was the nurse of Rebekah, Jacob's mother, came to be with the clan of Jacob, we do not know. All of a sudden she just kind of appears out of nowhere and it is her death that is mentioned to us. Perhaps she joined Jacob when she heard that, she was, that he was uh, re-entering the land. And why Genesis tells us of Deborah's death and not Rebekah's, Jacob's mother's, it's kind of mysterious. Perhaps it has to do with Rebekah's sin in suggesting the deceit of her husband Isaac when the blessing was stolen from Esau and given to Jacob those many years earlier. It's as if Deborah, the nurse, was highly esteemed, but Rebekah, not so much. Her death is mentioned here. Not only are we told of Deborah's death, but also of Rachel's. A little, a little later in the text, Rachel, remember, was the beloved wife of Jacob, the favorite of the four Verse 16, Then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor. This is a very sad story, isn't it? And she had hard labor. And this was very common in those days, by the way, much more common than it is today. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died. And she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. This is what Moses is saying to the people of Israel. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And so ironically, Rachel had years earlier spoken to Jacob in this way. This was before she had any children. Saying, give me children or I shall die. Genesis 30 verse 1. Rachel gave birth to one child and named his name Joseph. 
And after bearing Joseph, she said this, May the Lord add to me another son. Genesis 30, 24. And so both of her sayings came true, didn't they? She died in the process of giving birth to her second son. She, in her anguish and grief, named him Ben-Ani, meaning son of sorrow. But Jacob called him Benjamin, meaning son of the right hand, which was a much more positive name, given that the right hand signifies strength. It is also in this passage that the death of Isaac is reported to us. There we read, And Jacob came to his father Isaac and Mamre at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his, breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So this reference to Isaac's death brings this section concerning the generations of Isaac to a conclusion. Notice that both Jacob, the elect son, and Esau, the non-elect son, came together to bury Isaac. The same was true of the burial of Abraham, remember. Both Isaac and Ishmael were there to bury Abraham. So these brothers who were divided came back together again in both instances to bury their fathers. And I cannot help but think that this is meant to communicate in some way the fact that in and through these men and their elect descendants, blessings would come to all the nations of the earth. In due time and through the chosen offspring of Abraham, the middle wall of hostility would be broken down and the two peoples would become one through faith in the Christ who would come from their loins. So here the elect sons, Isaac and Jacob, bury their fathers. But the non-elect line also, Ishmael and Esau, they come together to give honor to their chosen fathers. But the point that I am making here is that as significant as Jacob's entry into Canaan was in the history of redemption, it is not the final step, for it is not the final state that is ushered in, not even close. Why? Death still plagues the people of Israel. Here Jacob is entering into Canaan, a wonderful step forward in the advancement of God's plans of redemption, but death still plagues the people of Israel. In the new heavens and earth, when the kingdom of God is here in full, here is what we are told, then the dwelling place of God will be with man, Revelation 21, 3-4. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, I think it is right for us to long for this day. It is right for us to long for the new heavens and the new earth, and that day when death is no more, neither mourning, nor crying, nor pain but I think it is also important for us to square with the reality that we are not there yet. I think Christians get themselves into a lot of trouble when they get ahead of themselves in regards to God's plan of redemption and the progress of it. If we have an overrealized eschatology, to use theological terms, it causes problems for us. If we live pretending as if some of those things that, were, that, that, that are going to be true in the future are here now, as if God's will for us is that we never suffer. As if God's will for us is that we never be sick. That we always be prosperous. That will be true then. 
But it is not true now, brothers and sisters. And so we must square with that reality that we are not yet in the final state. We are not yet in the new heavens and new earth. The kingdom of God is not yet here in fullness. We long for that day. And it is good that we long for it. But we must live within this world sober-minded, realizing that for us, we as sojourners, we're going to experience suffering in this world. But God is with us. Just as God was with Jacob, just as God was with Israel, so too God is with us to sustain us as we struggle in this world. Sometimes badly, He will be with us to comfort us and to preserve us to the end. Not only were there still enemies of God in the world in the days of Jacob, and not only were the people of Israel still plagued by death, they were also plagued by sin still. It is here that we learn that Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob's son, did a most terrible thing. Verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. That's wicked, isn't it? Reuben was hypocritical, for he did something similar to what Shechem had done to, the, to his sister Dinah earlier, which the sons of Jacob condemned. It seems that Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob's sons, was interested in usurping his father's authority somehow. It may also be that he was concerned that Bilhah not take the place of his father's favorite wife now that Rachel had died. Reuben wanted his mother and his little clan within a clan to have the privileged position. Whatever the rationale was for this thing that Reuben did, it was a very wicked thing. All agree upon that. And the text simply says that Israel, that is Jacob, heard of it. It doesn't say that Jacob did anything about it. And this has become typical of Jacob, right? He kind of hears of things and then he's passive. He's inappropriately content with whatever has happened. He's not enraged as he should be. And so far from being free from sin, as we will be in the new heavens and earth, Israel is still plagued by sin. There is sin in Israel's camp. And the family of Israel, the family of Jacob, is terribly divided. Notice that when the sons of Jacob are listed in verses 23 through 26, they are not listed from oldest to youngest, but they are listed according to their factions. That is how they are portrayed to us. First the sons of Leah, and then the sons of Rachel, and then after that the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Israel's camp is divided. And this will become important as the narrative continues to unfold, for it will be the jealousy and division amongst the sons of Jacob that led to Joseph's bondage in Egypt and the eventual salvation of Israel through him. Brothers and sisters, as the people of God living this side of glory, we will encounter opposition, we will suffer and experience times of mourning, and we will have to do battle with sin and its consequences. We simply need to prepare for it, to square with it, and we must not grow weary in the fight. In the days of Jacob, the kingdom of God was beginning to be prefigured, and the people of God uh, struggled with these things. Now that the Christ has come, we are living in God's inaugurated kingdom. It is here, but not in full. We have the victory in Christ Jesus and we have tasted of the glory to come, but we still live in a fallen world with pressures and heartaches of many kinds. We must persevere until the kingdom of God is consummated when Christ returns 
to make all things new. The third and final observation of Genesis 35 will be very brief. And it is this. In Genesis 35, Jacob is again encouraged with the promises of God, his eyes directed to the future fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and Isaac before him. He's encouraged as a sojourner, and his eyes are directed forward. Look forward, Jacob. Here you are entering into Canaan, but I still have work to do, Jacob. I'm still going to do greater things in the future in and through you and in and through your people. In verse 9 we read, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Doesn't this sound familiar? These things are being restated to Jacob. They are not new. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. What an appropriate name for God to be emphasized here given the circumstances. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Isn't that what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? Make the connection, brothers and sisters. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land of your offspring after you. In other words, Jacob, I'm going to turn you into a nation. I'm going to turn you into a nation. Much of this, as I have said, was a reminder of things that God had previously said to Jacob. But this was new. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Abraham had been told that kings and nations would come from him. But this was the very first time that it was said to Jacob. So Jacob's eyes were set to the future. He was to understand that God still had work to do. Him entering into Canaan and worshiping at Bethel and sojourning on from that place was not the full and final fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And my desire, brothers and sisters, as we do move to a conclusion, is that you would see and understand the big picture plan of God for the redemption of His elect and the renewal of this world that has been given over to corruption through man's fall into sin. That is my hope. God determined to provide a Savior. He did not have to, but He did. This Savior would be the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would be born from amongst the people who would descend from them. And before His arrival, this people, that is to say the Hebrew people, would be formed into a nation which would prefigure the kingdom of God and prepare for the arrival of the Christ through whom salvation would come and by whom the heavens and earth would be renewed. That's a mouthful right there. You might have to look at that again later and think upon it. This big picture, friends, is the one that we must keep in mind. This is the story of Scripture. It is the gospel of the kingdom. The purpose of the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not to encourage us to be like them, for they were clearly flawed. But the purpose of these stories is to lead us to have the faith that they had. Or to have the faith that they had, for they were, and here listen to Hebrews 11.10, they were looking forward, did you hear it? They were looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. They understood the promises that were given to them and the things that they were experiencing had to do with entering in, not to Canaan, but to the new heavens and new earth, that heavenly kingdom. In other words, they knew that the promises that, they were, that were made to them were ultimately about the Christ and the new heavens and new earth that would be earned by Him. 
Hebrews 11.13 says these, referring to the patriarchs, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. But if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But listen to this, brothers and sisters, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. That is what they desired, a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city, that is to say, the heavenly Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth. Let us be sure to have their faith, therefore. Let us be sure that we believe upon the Christ who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of life eternal. And I close with Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those who are the sons of Abraham. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would give us comprehension, that we would know the story of scripture. Uh, the story of Scripture being much more than a collection of uh, stories pertaining to the lives of your people as if they are moral examples for us and nothing more. Far from it. These men were flawed, and yet you called them out of the world so that you might use them to accomplish your purposes. You gave them promises, and they understood what those promises were about. Lord, may we have the same understanding. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus who came from amongst the Jewish people to live for us and to die for us and to rise victoriously and to ascend to power. We thank you for him and all that he has accomplished and all that he has earned, not only our personal salvation, but the redemption of all things in heaven and on earth. We thank you that through him and through faith in him we will enter into glory, which is what Adam should have done but didn't. We thank you for Christ Jesus our Lord, the second Adam, the victorious one, Father, we cling to Him. We do not have a righteousness of our own. We cannot make ourselves pure. We must be clothed in His righteousness. May we be found in Him on that last day when You return to make all things new. It's in the name of Christ we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.